You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Global Is Asian, the flagship thought leadership digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. Selena Ho is Assistant Professor in International Affairs and Co-Director of the Center on Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. She's an expert on Chinese politics and foreign policy. She is especially interested in how China wields power and influence via infrastructure and water disputes in Southeast Asia and South Asia. She is co-author of Rivers of Iron, Railroads and Chinese Power in Southeast Asia. She joins us to discuss China's domestic politics and foreign policy as China approaches key meetings, the 20th Party Congress, the National People's Congress, and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. I'm going to just jump right in with a really big question to get started with. From speculated infighting and schisms at the top rung of the Communist Party in leadership decisions to geopolitical tensions rising, what does China's near future outlook look like in the international arena? Thanks, David. You actually asked a really important question because Chinese foreign policy is often the result of domestic politics. And in this question that you asked, you actually point out to one of the roots and one of the motivators, one of the drivers of Chinese foreign policy, which is the kind of factionism in fighting political maneuverings that happens at the top leadership level within the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that's a really important factor that we need to look at when we talk about Chinese foreign policy. One of the key things that we should know is that there is a very important meeting coming up, which is the party congress that's coming up soon, really before the year ends. And then two congresses, the National People's Congress and the Chinese People Consultative Congress in March next year. Now, it's at this time where... Uh, Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping, will be making a bid to have his third term in office as the head of the CCP and also as president of the People's Republic of China. So we'll see how that plays out because that has implications for Chinese foreign policy. But for the time being, in the near term, from now till March next year, we should not expect any huge changes in Chinese foreign policy. It will continue going down this same trajectory, a very nationalistic tone and a very aggressive tone in a sense. It will be a case where Xi and those around him will play up China's role as a great power now that China has arrived at the international stage. It is no longer a rising power, but a reason power. And I think that's a key point that we should note, that China is no longer rising, but has reason. We should expect China not to back down from any of its position with respect to territories, with respect to great power rivalry, rivalry with the United States, with respect to Taiwan. That tone and substance in Chinese foreign policy will continue at least into the spring next year. And we should not expect any changes because Xi Jinping would need to have that strong, robust foreign policy in order to show up his credibility and legitimacy within his own party and with the Chinese people. There's been a lot of media speculation about the term China's wolf warriors. What do you think of this term of wolf warriors and what does that imply for China's foreign policy? I think that the term wolf warriors is actually something that the media has used to describe the very strong rhetoric and the very aggressive rhetoric that has been coming up 
from the Chinese foreign policy establishment since Xi Jinping took over. And perhaps even more obviously so in aggressive tone in the last few years as the rivalry with the U.S. accelerated. I would say that, you know, the term is really sensationalistic. It is more something that the media has used to describe Chinese diplomats rather than the way the Chinese describe themselves. But obviously the tone is very nationalistic. It is about that China has arrived. It is no longer a rising power, a reason power that seeks a place that should be commensurate with its power in the world stage and which it feels that the United States is denying it off. So we have to be careful about how sensationalistic the term is, wolf warriors, and to recognize that in essence, it is already a change in tone and substance of Chinese foreign policy. But we also need to recognize something else that is happening within the Chinese foreign policy establishment, which is the difference between the Reds and experts. By Reds, I mean those who are ideologues, and by experts, I mean the technocrats. So at one point, I believe there was a bit of a struggle within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for instance, between the Reds and the experts. But it would seem to me that in order for career advancement, the Reds have actually you need to be read in order to advance. Now, this read and experts thing is something that comes out from the Mao era. So ideology has become important again. Towing the party line, supporting the hardline stance in foreign policy, this is necessary in terms of career advancement. So you see diplomats doing it for, for career advancement purposes. So that's a dangerous trend, in my opinion, for foreign policy. And we need to be mindful and to be watchful of uh, this trend that's happening. If wolf warrior is a media creation term in a way, but you said that's not how they would describe themselves in China. What is the narrative in China? How do they describe the current posture of the diplomats and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs? Yeah, so the view within, within China is that the current international order, as it's reflected in, you know, international organizations like the IMF, is not reflective of China's status today. I would say it's sensationalistic. The Chinese will not call themselves book warriors, but I think what they are trying to say here is that, you know, China needs to be recognized for its rightful place on the world stage, whether it's in international organizations or in the UN or in having a say in the international order. China benefited from the international order that's established by the United States. But the current international order does not work for China. So what China wants is to tweak it, tweak the uh, international order such that it reflects more accurately where China is standing today. The wolf warrior term is not what the Chinese would call themselves, but it definitely is reflective of the nationalistic term, the term to reflect that China has arrived and that China is a reason power and no longer just a rising power. Thank you for that background. I'm going to ask you now about Australia, because Australia just had an election and a new government is in place. Do you see a shift in the tenor or tone or substance of Australia-China relations? I think that we can see from Senator Penny Wong's approach to the Chinese that we're likely to see a change in tone. I mean, the way the Australians approach the Chinese, we could see maybe perhaps improvement in communications, in diplomacy, in uh, talking to each other. But I think the position of the current administration has already been locked in by the previous administration. In a sense, in a previous administration, Australia has chosen sides. And it's clear that it's chosen to side with the United States for both internal and external reasons, for domestic reasons, because 
of the view that the Chinese have made inroads in, in Australian society and politics to the extent that it is compromising Australian interests from within. That's the internal reason. The external reason, obviously, is Australia's alliance with the United States. And so the previous administration has already chosen side. And I think that there's very little that the current administration can do to undo that. I, I don't think they want to undo that, to, to, to undo that alignment that they have already established, the, the chosen sides with the United States. But what we could expect to see perhaps is a change in tone and, you know, more other branches to the Chinese side, a little bit more balancing and hopefully, you know, try to get some of the sanctions off. But in real, real substance, I don't think we should expect any big shifts in Australian foreign policy towards China. Let's move on to the really big policy question that is on everyone's mind. And that's the Taiwan and the U.S.-Taiwan policy, which seems to be speeding forward right now. What is your take on that and, and what could we uh, expect to see in the near future? I think that the United States is trying to grapple with this one China policy. It maintains this one China policy, but as you can see, the strategic ambiguity that is enshrined in that one China policy is becoming more difficult for the United States to maintain that ambiguity, primarily because of its competition with China, but also for ideological reasons. If I may say about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which it doesn't trouble me per se as to why she did it. She did it because she felt that the United States need to stand up for Taiwan and also to give support to Taiwan. But I have no quarrel with that. But obviously there are risks, and I will not elaborate on the risk because I think the risks have been highlighted. What is happening seems to be the beginnings of a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. The first two happened during the Cold War, and the third one happened in the 1990s. This is the fourth one that seems to be emerging. The crisis is happening right now. Now, what troubles me about her visit was what she said in her op-ed for the Washington Post. And I quote, she said, we cannot stand by as the CCP proceeds to threaten Taiwan and democracy itself. She continued as Russia wages its premeditated illegal war against Ukraine. It is essential that America and our allies make clear that we never give in to autocrats. Now, there are two things that troubled me here. One is that the analogy between Taiwan and Ukraine. If American policymakers think of Taiwan as equivalent to Ukraine, I think that could be troubling implications for the U.S.'s one-China policy. The two are different. Ukraine, it has its independence since the, the Soviet Union collapsed. It's been recognized to be a sovereign state by Russia itself. So it was definitely a war. Now, the situation with Taiwan is a little more complicated than that. There is that one-China policy, meaning that most countries around the world have not recognized Taiwan as an independent country because of that one-China policy. So there is a key difference there. If the Chinese do attack and evade Taiwan, the question of whether it's illegal is actually a big question mark. If you were to think about the one-China policy, not that I am a proponent that China should do that, but I would like to just state up front that there is a difference between Ukraine and Taiwan. So that's that's a that's troubling for me because it seems to me that US policymakers do not see a difference. And so the question, if there's no difference, what does this imply for the US's one China policy? And I can see why the Chinese are worried. The second point about a statement that that troubled me was the mention of democracies and 
autocracies. So again, you know, ideology seems to be wearing its ugly head again in terms of what we saw during the Cold War. Ideological competition, ideological differences was one of the key characteristics of the old Cold War. I have been hesitant to call this U.S.-China rivalry as a new Cold War, primarily because I do not see it as an ideological struggle, but more so of a struggle between an established power and that of a rising or reasoned power, in this case, China. So it was, to me, a case of differences in national interest and not so much of an ideological perspective because the Chinese do not necessarily think in ideological terms and it does not necessarily have the intention to export its ideology to the rest of the world in the way that the Soviet Union did and the way that Mao, Maoist China did in Southeast Asia. What China is probably trying to do here is to ensure that its political system is accepted as part of the international system, that there can be varieties of political systems that coexist in the international system. Obviously, we can debate about this because Chinese example autocratic practices do encourage autocrats from other countries to think that they can do what the Chinese do, which is, I think, a very wrong assumption. The authoritarian system in China is, in, to a certain extent, allowed China, China to grow and to succeed primarily because they have a capable leadership. But with all autocratic systems, when you have a bad emperor, to quote some other scholars who have mentioned that. With autocratic systems, when you have a bad emperor, then what will happen is that you will see that, you know, corruption seeps in, rent-seeking predatory behavior will sicken. Rather than, you know, so far, you know, Chinese leaders have always think about the good of the Chinese citizens. At least they try. But the safeguards are not there. The institutional safeguards are, are not there to correct wrongdoing. So my point here is that I'm concerned about two things. That the the rivalry between the US and China has taken an ideological turn and that there is among policymakers and for US policymakers, they draw conclusions from the war in Ukraine and apply it to Taiwan, which I think is a wrong lesson to pick up. The China-India relationship has also seen a lot of tensions lately. What's your current view of the China-India relationship and what do you foresee happening in the near future? The border dispute between China and India is still unresolved and it's going to be difficult to resolve even in the long term. But we can see that India is trying to maintain its its independent position. I hesitate to use the term neutrality or non-alignment because those terms have their own implications when you address them. But it's trying to maintain an independent foreign policy, independent from the United States. So it's taken a neutral stance when it comes to the idea of the free and open India-Pacific which is that it has taken a stance that is different from that of the United States. It, is, it sees the FOIP as a inclusive and in willing to accommodate China in it. It has also taken a very independent stance from the United States when it comes to the Ukraine issue, the war, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So India has its own independent foreign policy will exert that. And that, in a way, gives it room to maintain semblance of a, of a normal relationship with with China. What I'm saying is that it will not go to that center of Australia in taking sides and that it will, you know, despite all the border disputes that are going on, the exchanges at the economic level, at the political level are still ongoing between China and India. 
So that's one important thing to note that there is a difference between uh, rhetoric, which is you know necessary for for coming across as as nationalistic you know, nationalistic sentiments. There is a difference in that kind of rhetoric and actual policies being played out, which is that exchanges communications are still going on between China and India. Now I would like to turn to the book that you co-authored, The Rivers of Iron, Railroads and Chinese Power in Southeast Asia. Could you share two of the big takeaways from the many lessons that we could derive from the eight Asian nations and China's infrastructure initiatives? With my co-authors, David, Mike Lampton, and Andrew Quick, we wrote this book. It was four to five years in the making because in it, it included field trips to about eight to nine countries and included interviews. There are more than 200 plus interviews in the, in the book. So one of the key takeaways, I think, from the book and which we want to emphasize is the agency that secondary states or smaller states have when dealing with a big power. It is clear in the book that while China has dominance in Southeast Asia, we wouldn't say that the dominance is the same as exclusivity. Because the region does seek to diversify and it uses whatever tools it can to diversify, to draw investments from the Japanese, from South Koreans, from Europeans and from the United States as well. It also means that Chinese dominance does not mean that there is no resistance. The smaller states do have agency and they do resist some of the initiatives from China that could impinge on their sovereignty. Well, obviously, the extent of agency of secondary states is dependent on, you know, several things. One of them is whether you have state capacity, whether you have strong institutions and rule of law. The other one is whether you're economically strong or not. I mean, obviously, you know, middle-income countries in Southeast Asia will be in a stronger position to resist Chinese dominance as opposed to, say, the smaller economies of Laos and Cambodia, who are more reliant on China. If you also have a stronger economy, you probably have the ability to diversify your reliance or your over-dependence. For example, Singapore is has done a pretty good job in diversifying our economy. We're not overly dependent on, on China. Therefore, we could actually resist certain initiatives from the Chinese that constituted as dominance. I think one of the key lessons is that secondary states do have agency, but it varies according to your ability and state capacity, the strength of the economy, the cohesion of your leadership, and also like how, what is the size of the economy, the size of the population, all these things matter. The second lesson that I think we can take from the book is that China has tremendous capacity for infrastructure building and construction. The Pan-Asia Railway, which is the key subject of interest in Rivers of Iron, is a vision that was formulated as early as colonial times in Southeast Asia with the French and the Japanese. And then later itself, Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN, actually have this vision of a railway that runs from southern China all the way down to Singapore and Malaysia. But it was the Chinese when they had finally arrived in terms of economically in the 1990s, uh, early 2000s, when the economy grew, whether they have acquired substantive technology, the technology and the, the money to actually fund such a project, then we can see this plan being put into action, this vision of a pan-Asia railway being put into action by these bilateral links that they are making through uh, the mainland Southeast Asia right down to Singapore. 
The China-Lao section of the railway has already been built. The part in Thailand is slowly being built. Nothing's happening yet on the Malaysia and Singapore front, but we should see some revival of these initiatives later on after COVID and, and all that. We should never doubt China's ability to carry out these infrastructure initiatives. But having said that, and an update to the book, which I should also mention, the Chinese economy is actually in deep trouble right now. Its banking sector is suffering from from debt, that has a lot of implications for the BRI itself, the Belt and Road Initiative, because if there is a debt crisis within the Chinese banking system, then the loans and investments that have been promised may not be realized, right? When observers look at the Belt and Road Initiative, one of the criticisms have been that China is using debt trap diplomacy. And I think that's a wrong term to use. And I think scholars have come up to say that why that's a wrong term to use. But primarily, the one that to me is most convincing is what some economists have already spoken about. That if I owe the bank $100, that's my problem. But if I owe the bank $100 million, it's the bank's problem. So in this case, you know, it doesn't make sense to me why China would put its banking system under stress in order to entrap, you know, these smaller countries around its periphery. I think the, the, the risks are extremely high and the gains are compared to risks, may not be worth it at all. This is one thing that I should mention as a caveat in terms of whether China would succeed in its infrastructure initiatives, because if its banking system sinks under this pressure of loans for infrastructure overseas projects, then we will see the BRI shrinking in size and its success may be called into question. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Rivers of Iron, Railroads and Chinese Power in Southeast Asia by David M. Lampton, Selena Ho, and Chum Chui Quick, as well as Professor Ho's other works, are available on Amazon.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globalization newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global Is Asian.